Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is a special episode of Intercepted. The state of Texas has set an execution date of November 20th for Rodney Reed. He's been on death row since 1998, following his conviction in the murder of a young woman named Stacy Stites. That happened in April of 1996. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence in this case that Rodney Reed is innocent. And there's a very compelling case to be made that Stites' fiance at the time of her murder should be the focus of this case. Her fiance was a police officer at the time of that killing. He also is now a convicted felon himself with a shocking track record of violent assault and rape while he was a police officer. Rodney Reed's life is now hanging in the balance, and an unlikely coalition of high-profile people are trying to halt this execution, including Texas Republican politicians and elected officials. Perhaps most prominent among these is Senator Ted Cruz. The Intercept's tenacious reporter, Jordan Smith, has covered this case for 18 years, and she knows the facts of it better than probably any other journalist. Jordan joins me now alongside her partner in criminal justice reporting, Liliana Segura. They are the co-hosts of the excellent podcast series, Murderville. Liliana, Jordan, thanks so much for joining me on this special episode of Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Hi, thank you. So, Jordan, let's first just go back to April 23rd, 1996. Walk us through the facts as we know them of what happened on that night. Well, <laughs> what we know happened was that the 19-year-old Stacy Stites was found murdered on the side of a country road just outside Bastrop, Texas, which is about about a half an hour sort of east of Austin. The body of 19-year-old Stacy Stites was found along a Bastrop County roadside. She'd been raped and strangled. She was partially clothed. She was lying face up. There was a mark on her neck that looked like she'd been strangled with a piece of braided belt, and there was a piece of braided belt sitting near her body. But that's pretty much all we know for sure. <laughs> but when, where, and by whom has always been an open question. Family members came from all corners of Texas to comfort Carol Stites. She's lost her youngest of five children, Stacy Lee. She was just as pretty on the outside as she was on the inside. Carol Stites says she doesn't understand who could purposely end the life of someone who had so much to live for. She had her plans and she had her marriage coming up and she had a life with Jim. And now somebody's taken that away. 
How did Rodney Reed end up getting arrested for this crime? Stites's murder went unsolved for uh, roughly a year. And then in 1997, some cops, you know, investigating, sort of acting on a hunch, compared DNA from sperm found in her to Rodney Reed, and it matched. They had arrested him on another unrelated charge, a drug charge, and asked him, did you know Stacey Stites? And he says, no, no, didn't know her. Do you even know who she is? No, I didn't. I don't know Stacey Stites. I've seen that, that, that stuff on the news and stuff like that, but I don't, I don't know that person. If I showed you a picture of her, would you, would you recognize the picture that you saw in the names? Do you know this girl? No, I don't. This girl is Stacey Stites. Okay. Have you ever seen her before? No, I haven't. Never dated her? No, I don't know this person. But then shortly thereafter, he kind of walks that back and says, yeah, I did know her. We were having a consensual relationship, and that is what explains my DNA. He brought me in here on this drug thing. Mm-hmm. Over there. I'm coming in here on this. Should not have an attorney or something? I should have an attorney. All right. Somebody be here to get you for some minutes. At that point, he was arrested, and he's never been out of prison since then. Prosecutors say DNA evidence will prove Rodney Reed did it. The defense told the jury, though, there is plenty of reasonable doubt. It could have been Stacy's fiancé, a police officer who... Rodney Reed had been arrested in previous cases. What had he been arrested for? Why did they go and have his sperm to be able to compare, or his DNA, rather, to, to compare in this case? There were several sexual assaults that had occurred in Bastrop, and they had his DNA sort of related to one of those cases. He was never convicted of that, was he? No, he wasn't. He was actually charged with a rape in the late 80s that he went to trial for and was acquitted of. And then these remaining cases were never prosecuted. In fact, you know, it seems that they were barely investigated, really. I mean, there was one involving a 12-year-old girl that had happened in 1989. And, you know, even up into the late 90s when Rodney would go on trial for Stites' murder, that was still clearly hadn't been a priority for cops to solve. So all those cases remained open. And once Reed was convicted of killing Stites, they kind of all said, well, look, those cases are solved as well. So they were never prosecuted. If you're just looking at this from the perspective of, okay, here was an unsolved murder, we have a DNA match, Uh, the accused says he doesn't know this person, so how is it that, you know, his DNA matches the sperm found in her dead body? And that, I think, is how a lot of people look at this, except we need to dig into who was Stacey Stites' fiancé at the moment of her murder. Well, it was a local cop named Jimmy Fennell white guy. You know, Stacey Stites is white. You know, this is Bastrop in the 90s. There are some very clear racial dynamics that set things up in a sort of way that gives rise to a lot of red flags sort of down the line. It's important to note that early on, Fennell was a suspect. It was hard being having the finger pointed at you. It was hard for them saying that, yeah, you killed Stacy, your fiance, that you did it because of these reasons, these reasons, you know. But, you know, I kept in my mind that I didn't do it, that they would eventually find the right person. 
which makes perfect sense. Whenever there's intimate partner, your intimate partner is killed, of course they're going to look at the other person. And it's interesting to note because they knew that Jimmy did not match the DNA they found. But so it kind of suggests that at that point, they didn't necessarily think that that DNA was the linchpin of the case. It wasn't until after they sort of associate it with Reed that then suddenly it's dispositive, and that's like the only factor that matters. So early on, you know, they had focused on Fennell as a suspect, and yet sort of inexplicably never searched the apartment that they shared, which was arguably the last person place she was seen alive. And their whole entire timeline of this crime really hinges on Fennell's account of what would have happened that morning. So she had to work very early shift at the grocery store starting at about 3.30. He wasn't awake when she got up to go to work, but she would have left around 3, and then she would have driven to work. And so based on these sort of could-have-possibly-happened-this-way story of Fennell's, they build this entire narrative and theory of the case where they have Stites leaving for work on normal time and getting in Fennell's truck and driving a series of state highways towards Badstrop. And, you know, they decide that at some point, somehow, somewhere, they've never said where or how, Reed, who's on foot on the state highway or something somewhere, um, somehow overpowers her and hijacks her out of the car, drives her out into the country, strangles her, rapes her, dumps her body, then drives the truck back into Bastrop, locks it up and walks away. That's a pretty, <laughs> it's a it's a pretty sort of fantastic theory to swallow, you know, but that's kind of where this whole thing goes. It's like this juggernaut based on this like really sort of strange and not very plausible sort of theory of the crime. This case and that prosecution and this looming execution really has to be understood in a very specific context, which is Rodney Reed is a black man who was accused of raping and murdering a white woman in the South. And I think part of the reason that this case has really struck the kind of nerve that it has um, right now is that it really is an emblem of a very old story and a story about the death penalty that really is a direct legacy of racial terror lynchings in the South going back many decades. And the reason I think it's really important to talk about this is that if you revisit the kind of early history of the death penalty and you sort of trace that line between lynchings and how sort of at the very moment that sort of lynchings start to fall out of favor and start to dissipate, there's a rise in state-sanctioned executions that is really defended explicitly along the same lines that lynchings always were defended. Lynchings were necessary to protect white women from the sexual attacks of black men in the South. This is how they were defended. It was seen as a deterrent. And, you know, this isn't just sort of a theoretical argument. When the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the death penalty in 1972, in part over concerns that it was um, being handed out in a racially biased way. The Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional today and spared the lives of 600 men in death row cells across the country. Here's ABC's Herbert Kaplow at the Supreme Court. The vote was five to four against the death penalty. Justices Brennan and Marshall said it is cruel and unusual punishment and therefore unconstitutional. Douglas, he said the death penalty has been imposed disproportionately on minority groups. More than half of the 600 people now under death sentence are black. Stewart voted against the death penalty because it's been applied in what he called a wanton and freakish manner. In other words, in not any consistent or uniform pattern. He pointed out that in the three test cases ruled on today, two of the defendants were convicted of rape and their victims were not killed. 
Justice Thurgood Marshall talked about the racism of rape prosecutions specifically. You know, the death penalty was a punishment for rape um, in that era. And the statistics around this are really staggering when you read about them. You know, 455 people had been executed in the United States for rape um, since the 1930s. And out of that number, 405 had been black men. So, you know, we sort of tend to forget a little bit that this is sort of the animating force behind the death penalty going back, you know, early half of the 1900s. But it's really important to remember in the context of the South and in the context of the Rodney Reed case. Walk people through uh, some of your impressions uh, and reporting of what happened at that trial. I mean, it starts out with the fact that there were only potentially two black jurors who both were struck by the state. So we don't we have a jury that has no black people on it. And then we have attorneys that are court appointed who were just simply not prepared. They had essentially spent about 40 hours on the case a month out of trial. Well, that's just not acceptable. (laughs) You know, a month before the trial, they'd only spent 40 hours. I mean, that's just insane. They had promised in their opening statements that they were going to provide this context for the DNA, which was that there was this relationship. And it's just stunning how they completely failed to do that, even though that was their strongest promise to the jury. And it just sort of created an opening, you know, for the state to really hammer home the significance of the DNA, which they called, you know, the smoking gun and the Cinderella slipper of the case and just hammered that home, you know, and there was really nothing to. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Counter that narrative, so it's kind of unsurprising that it went down the path that it did. It's devastating news for one family. News of justice and relief for another. I'm really glad that justice was served and that um, the system really does work. It was not an easy decision. It was very hard. It was a lot of pressure. We considered all the facts, and uh, I believe that justice was done. But 12 white jurors, you know, this is something that you expect. Just like I said before, you know, I had built myself up already for this verdict that they were going to give, so... It doesn't come as any surprise whatsoever. Some in this town call this case electrifying. They hope this verdict will bring some closure to all the tension and emotions they've felt. As this evening, they put to rest the first capital murder trial this town has seen in at least 30 years. Amy Grizafi, KVU 24 News. The other part about the trial that's really important to understand is that Texas has a bifurcated 
system where you decide guilt, innocence first, jury comes back and determines that, and then you launch immediately into a punishment hearing where the question of whether you'll be sentenced to death is really the only one on the table. And they basically argue during this punishment hearing that, you know, you're irredeemable. And in order to do that, it is allowable that you can bring in literally every terrible thing you've even been accused of. You, like, kicked an old lady on the street, that's coming in. You know, you stole some gum, you know, you hit your teacher, coming in, coming in, to show how, you know, sort of worthless you are. And here, what they did was they used these unadjudicated rape cases, mere allegations, to suggest that Rodney not only committed them, but that proved that he was this sort of serial sex offender who, you know, really could not be saved and must be killed. I do want to say that I have been criticized over the years for not focusing more on these rape allegations. My answer to that would be twofold. One, which is what's striking when you read the testimony, is that it is very clear that these women you know, sort of had experienced very traumatizing sexual attacks. But it's also clear that those were not really investigated very well. And then what they instead did was sort of sweep up all these sexual assault allegations and use them, sort of weaponize these terrorizing stories to try to put a black man to death. These were all also, you know, back to the point Liliana was making, these were all also white female victims. So they were really able to play up this idea of this, like, very aggressive, you know, black predator out to harm white women. And, you know, it worked. It totally worked. I want to fast forward from Rodney Reed getting sentenced to death to a late night in October of 2007 that you wrote about back in 2014, uh, Jordan Smith. Explain what happened to Connie Lear in October of 2007. Connie Lear was playing cards and drinking with some friends, including her boyfriend at the time. They ended up sort of getting into an argument and were outside this apartment complex and sort of having words in a town called Georgetown, which is just north. It's sort of a suburb. The cops are called to kind of calm a situation, and that does happen. And then she gets put in a police car, and instead of being driven to where her boyfriend was going to be, she is taken to a recreational area. She is pulled out of the car. She's thrown against the back of the car, and she's raped by the cop, who is in uniform, obviously, on duty. He takes his gun off of his duty belt, he puts it by her head, and he rapes her. And the cop that did that was Jimmy Finnell. The cop whose fiancé was murdered and who Rodney Reed is now facing potential execution for in that case. Correct. While Georgetown officers work the streets, one of their own is off the street. A grand jury returned an indictment against Sergeant Jimmy Fennell. Prosecutors allege Fennell detained a woman in late October because of a domestic disturbance, then raped her at gunpoint. He's charged with sexual assault, kidnapping, improper sexual activity with someone in custody. After the assault is over, he basically threatens to kill her. He says, look, if you ever tell anybody about this and I have to go to prison, I'm going to get out, I'm going to get my gun, I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. So to her credit, she actually did press forward. And that case basically unlocked some additional reports, credible reports of sexual harassment, of inappropriate touching, and potentially even one more rape committed by Fennell over the years as a cop. I mean, it's important to understand that like, you know, other cops knew about these complaints. Nobody did anything, right? So you have this predator cop walking around assaulting women. And like in Connie's case, while on duty and wearing his uniform. 
So she pressed it forward, and ultimately, Fennell was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And he just got out last fall. Is there any move to try to get him charged uh, with Stacey Stites' murder? I mean, is he just walking around a free man? Do we know, is there any other evidence that's come out recently about Jimmy Fennell? Like I said, he was considered a suspect early on. He was given polygraph exams, two of them, and failed both, including on the question of whether he had strangled Stites. Now, polygraph examinations are notoriously unreliable, right? So (laughs) I'm not saying it for the truth of the matter, but what happens after that is that he invokes his Fifth Amendment right, and he stops cooperating with the investigation. When it rolls around to trial time, he changes his tune, and he's suddenly, you know, a witness for the state and and testifying about how they just had this wonderful relationship and everything was so hunky-dory and pumping up this timeline about what she would have done that morning and where she would have driven and all this stuff to sort of bolster the state's narrative. But then in subsequent years, as more and more evidence has kind of come out after the Lear stuff, um, after a lot of other things have come out about Jimmy's behavior and propensity for violence and racism, you know, there was a hearing in 2017, which he was, you know, called to come testify. And here we go again. Now he's back to claiming his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and saying simply that he stood by his trial testimony. There are, um, within the last, you know, month, law enforcement officers that knew Fennell and or Stacy back in the 90s have come forward to tell stories about some really sort of disturbing behavior that they saw from him in one case, you know, before and after the murder and in one case after the murder at the funeral home. So, I mean, in that case, the guy says at the funeral and I saw Jimmy sort of standing over the casket and saying menacingly, you know, you got what you deserved. And in another case, a guy who was actually friends with Finnell and with Stacy has this story about how about a month or so, I think, before she was murdered, that he was over at their apartment complex and Stacy had gone off to the pool and they were standing by this barbecue pit and that Jimmy comes out with this just like a really stunning sort of sentence and says basically that he knows that his fiance is fucking an N. And, and this guy who was like sort of shocked by this in explaining why he never came forward before. He said he left law enforcement and he left Bastrop, but that he still had family there and that he was worried what would happen if his family was seen sort of perceived as going against law enforcement. I don't think that's an unreasonable concern. Liliana, where do things stand now and what is Rodney Reed's best hope? The lawyers, obviously, as in any uh, death penalty case, are going to be fighting this until the very end. And so the next thing that's happening, as far as I understand, is that the Supreme Court is going to be conferencing on this case on the 15th of November. And that's where they're going to decide uh, whether or not they're going to take up any of the issues that have been raised before them. What, What are the specific grounds for the appeal in this case going before the Supreme Court, Jordan? A couple of issues, actually. And one is really related to Fennell, okay? Back in 2016, what happened was a cop that worked with Jimmy was interviewed by CNN's Death Row Stories, where he basically gave an alternate accounting of what Fennell had done the night before Stites was murdered. He had claimed that he'd been at home alone with her all night and everything was just great. And this man named Curtis Davis says, well, no, that's actually not what Jimmy told me. Jimmy told me the next day after they'd found Stacy's body that he had actually stayed out drinking the night before with some cops that he coached a Little League team with. So this is like a completely different story. And that Curtis Davis sort of interview was what prompted in part, 
a review in 2017 where Fennell then takes the fifth again. So one of the questions before the Supreme Court, it basically has to do with how to deal with a witness like Fennell invoking this right against self-incrimination and refusing to testify when they're actually being confronted with this suppressed evidence, i.e. the Curtis Davis allegation, right? So it's like, what do you do when you have this sort of potentially exculpatory information and certainly one that counters this official narrative, but then you have somebody refusing to testify about it. So that's one. And then the other question actually has to do with junk science, because there was a lot of junk science sort of invoked in this case, talking to how to deal with that after the fact when science that was used to convict you has been shown to be unsound and how the courts, how we should deal with that. And of course, there is one last question, and that is, does it actually violate the Constitution to execute an innocent person? It's a long shot. I mean, it's a, it's a real long shot. The other thing that's sort of pending out there is whether or not Governor Abbott, Greg Abbott, would get involved and at least stop the execution. Now, under Texas law, the governor can only issue a temporary reprieve. They do not have the power to do anything more than that, absent a recommendation for clemency or commutation that comes from the Board of Pardons and Paroles. So Texas's Board of Pardons and Paroles is like notoriously awful. Until not very long ago, they still basically faxed in their decisions about clemency. They are not required to meet. They're not required to really do anything at all. But they're all appointed by the governor. So the governor could, you know, obviously say, hey, give me some cover, recommend something here, right? So that's potentially possible. We see these examples again and again. And as we talk about this, and as I think about that sort of final question before the court, this question of, you know, is it unconstitutional to execute an innocent person? It's appalling. You know, it's appalling that that's a question that's sort of a legitimate, uh, legally unanswered question. But one thing that Brian Stevenson always says, which is really the proper way to think about this, the so-and-so, does this, you know, a convicted murderer deserve to die? That the more proper sort of legitimate question is actually, do we as a society deserve to kill? You know, do we deserve to kill... Why why do we still have this legitimate power, given everything that we know about the way that, you know, the death penalty is racist, the way in which we've gotten it wrong over and over and over again, the way in which a state like Texas has put to death so many people in this like with this this complete sort of impunity when it comes to um, really confronting any of these problematic cases? I mean, it's kind of appalling and it it does frustrate me. You know, Rodney Reed came so close to execution in 2015 and, and it could come down to the wire again. Liliana Segura and Jordan Smith, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Jordan Smith and Liliana Segura are both journalists at The Intercept. Check out all of their work on the case of Rodney Reed at theintercept.com. And that does it for this bonus episode of Intercepted. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted. We're also on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. If you like what we do, support our show by going to theintercept.com slash join to become a sustaining member. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Tizadoro. Our producer is Laura Flynn. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription for this program is done by Nuria Marquez-Martinez. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.